It will be from Ephesians. And we will be in the we will be in the third chapter. Starting in verse 14, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 through the end of the chapter. As is the custom of this church, please stand for the reading of God's word. Ephesians 3, verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think, according to the power at work within us, To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. This sermon text is such a precious one. I hope as you were listening to it, you were captivated by the power of Paul's prayer for us. There are times, I'm sure you've experienced this as well as I have, that when you are around someone who is a powerful person who prays to God, you feel that. And here we have God-inspired words of a servant of God praying uh, to the Heavenly Father. This was this text we just read. Martin Lloyd-Jones quoted the following about it. You will never hear anything greater than that. However long you live in this world, whatever orator may arise, you will never hear anything equal to that. In eloquence, in elevation of thought, in profundity of language and of concept, it is undoubtedly one of the great mountain peaks in Scripture. There are many who would say, and I have no doubt that they are right, that this is the highest peak in all of the glorious range of Scripture truth of divine revelation. He really does lift us right up into the heavens and prays for things which are almost incredible. Well, we are, uh, I am uh, trepidatious to try and approach such a text as that to do glory to it. But the good news is it does not depend on man, that God's word is uh, living and active and that God will accomplish what he wants through it. There are three things I want us to get out of this text tonight. First is the Christian example. We'll see that from Paul. The second is the Christian power. And the third is the Christian limit. So, verse 14 and 15. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. 
Remember, so you have that phrase, for this reason. Well, what, what is he talking about? What are these reasons? Well, if we look back up to verse 1 of this chapter, that is where he started, for this reason. And then he breaks off to teach some glorious things, and we covered that last time, and we're thankful that he broke off for that, for those were beautiful truths of Scripture that we were able to get. But now he's returning, and he says, for this reason, and he's now going to pray. He wants to pray for the church. Uh, We have already had one great prayer from Paul. That was back in chapter 1. I wonder if we remember what he prayed for then. It was for wisdom. It was for enlightenment. He wanted the Christians to know things. And now he's praying for power. This verse, this text at the end of chapter 3 is a transition point. He has been covering theology in the first three chapters. And he is about to transition into chapter 4 and 5 and 6. And as you will see, as we will see in the following uh, times that we meet, that he is about to start giving practical living. He's about to give uh, how we are to live, orders and commands. And the order of that should not escape us. It is theology first before we get to things called practical living. It is, um, you know, R.C. Sproul had a, a uh, series, a lecture series on philosophy. And he titled that, that series, The Consequence of Ideas. And the notion there is, if you have a philosophy inside of you, if you have an idea inside of you, whatever you're thinking, whatever your internal theology is, it works its way out. It never stays inside of you. It always comes to the surface. Some of you know Viktor Frankl. He was a Holocaust survivor. And here's a quote from him. I am absolutely convinced that the gas chambers of Auschwitz, Treblinka, and Maidenek were ultimately prepared, not in some ministry or other in Berlin, but rather at the desks and in the lecture halls of nihilistic scientists and philosophers. So his claim was the philosophy that we imbibe, the philosophy that we live with, will always work its way to the surface. Of course, we know that to be true within the church as well. There are many of us who sadly could go by the name of hypocrite, Right, uh, especially young people in the church who uh, will show up and do all the churchy things and then go out and live lives that are contrary to everything that they've had. So is that speaking of some internal thing that's working its way out? We profess one thing and do another. We pray that uh, that does not fit us, that title of hypocrite. Oh, how we desire that that wouldn't be our case. Never underestimate, the point here we're making is never underestimate the importance of theology. Some people want to push it to the side and say, that's, that's just you know extra stuff that we don't really need. Give me some practical stuff. The theology is so practical. You need it or the practical things will be of no effect. Calvin points out that this prayer serves two purposes. It testifies, this is a quote, it testifies to his regard to them and likewise excites them to pray in the same manner. And this is our first point, the Christian example. We're seeing here Paul. Remember, Paul is in prison. Remember, Paul could be focused on his things, but he is on his knees praying for the church, praying for other people. His heart is for them. We have this Christian example. We are to be called to pray for saints around this globe. I wonder if we were to take a survey tonight 
What would our score be for how many of us prayed for saints around the world this week? How many of us prayed for those who are being persecuted? How many of us prayed for the growth of the church? If you are struggling in that regard, I, I recommend to you a book called Operation World. I first encountered that in college. It is a, a thick book that has every single country in the whole globe. And it says what their specific prayer needs are, the things that they're suffering in, the things that you can pray for. And it's a wonderful book. And so in your evening devotionals, when you're praying for your family and when you're praying for the church, hopefully, you can also pray for a specific country and just work your way through the book as you're going through. But this is the Christian example. We are to have a heart for those around the world. We want others to grow in grace. Another aspect that Calvin noted was that nothing will be gained by their industry and toil and all their study and application will be to no purpose except so far as the Lord bestows his blessing. And we know that that is true and how that should excite us to be praying these prayers, that they would prosper, that Christians around the world would grow in grace, would that that were our hearts, that we, we joyed to go. We didn't dread going to the prayer closet, but we joyed to go that we were going to do something mighty that would stretch across the globe, that would build up his church. Oh, would we have that heart? Calvin speaks also of this phrase, you know, Paul says he's kneeling, uh, Calvin says, the bodily attitude is here put for the religious exercise uh, itself. Not that prayer in all cases requires the bending of the knees, but because this is an expression of his reverence and is commonly employed. You know, and Martin Lloyd-Jones points this out, that there is this thing called formalism where you begin to associate a certain liturgy or a certain worship style or a certain thing with the importance. That's the, you place the importance on that itself as opposed to the act of worship. And, of course, this was a, a terrible problem at the time of the Reformation uh, and is why the uh, Reformers and the Puritans even uh, refused to do so when, it, there were, when they were doing the Mass, it was common practice. They, you kneeled, and then the, the priest would put the wafer in your mouth or, or what have you. And, and the serfs and the normal common people thought that the kneeling in this ritual was so important, and the Puritans refused. They said, we, there is no kneeling. You will come up and you will take communion. It's not in the formalism. It's not in the, the way that you're... It's your heart. It's, the, it's God's sacrifice. It's what Christ did. It's not this ritual that's important. And so we see this expression of kneeling, and, and it is right to kneel. It is right to give honor and reverence to God, but don't be attached to a certain uh, position or a certain posture, a certain liturgy. We are not to, to fixate on these forms. We are to fixate on Christ himself. The second point, so that was the Christian example. Paul, he is kneeling. He is submissive to God. He has a heart for the people. That is our example. Second point, the Christian power. Verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So what is this inner being? 
What is this inner man? Well, it's your heart. It's your soul. It's the inside. It's your inner character. We uh, see how there can be two people who encounter the same situation, the same disaster, and one can crumble and yet one can stand firm. And how can this be? Well, it's the inner being. Nehemiah 8.10 is the joy of the Lord, your strength. Right? It's Christ in you. It's God giving power inside of you. It's the inner man. If I were to ask you, what is it that our society values most, the inner man or the outer man? And of course, we know it is unfortunately the outer man. It is appearances. It is uh, how many um, likes you get or, or um, I can't even mention other things on, on social media because I don't know what they are. But it's, it's how popular you seem to be or whatever. It's the outer man. And yet we know that that is absolutely not what Christ is looking at. He looks at the heart. I spoke again of the, uh, the situation in, in, that's all too common in Christian churches where there are those hypocrites who have the outer being. They look put together and they look right, but on the inside they are not and they do not live and it always works its way out. Bill Bennett, who was the uh, Secretary of Education under Ronald Reagan and also the Director of the Office of National Drug Control Policy. That's a full title, so people just call him the drug czar. He was that under George H.W. Bush. But when he was the Secretary of Education, he would go around touring schools, visiting schools, and he lamented that it seemed that there were so many young people who had just no morality, none whatsoever. And he thought, well, what can we do about that? And so he wrote a book called The Book of Virtues, and he wanted teachers to be using it and teaching it in the schools. Of course, that was as good as he could do, right? Because the Supreme Court said in 1962 there couldn't be prayer in school. And it said in 1963 there couldn't be Bible reading in school. So a book just on bare morals is as good as he could try. And yet we know how that is ineffective, how that will not work. That's once again trying to work to the outside and, and conforming when it... What is the strength that comes in this verse? Where are, is the strength coming from? Is it the inner man itself that is the strength? No, it is God that is the strength. It is His power. It's His Holy Spirit. So of course anybody trying to just use their inner man to be moral is doomed to fail. And we see that in Scripture. Romans 7, verses 18 through 20. This is Paul, the great apostle. For I know... Uh, that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do the thing, uh, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. What a terrible uh, situation that is. And when we are relying on what he describes as the flesh, as just our in ourself as it is, and not the power of God in our inner man, then we are doomed to fail. If that weren't enough of a reason to be uh, putting, uh, seeking this power that comes from Christ and comes from above, if that weren't enough of a reason, just the fact that we are so weak of our own strength, we're going to find in chapter 6, that we are in a spiritual war that requires uh, a breastplate of righteousness and all these tools and defenses. So it's not just that you need him because you're weak. It's because you are in a war. Oh, how we need what, what Paul is praying for here. Now, what exactly is this power through the Spirit? 
Other scriptures, like Ephesians 5.18, speak of be filled with the Spirit. Filled with the Spirit. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. Uh, this is where we can see verses like Second uh, Corinthians four seven and nine and seven through nine and uh, verse sixteen. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed; perplexed, but not driven to despair; persecuted, but not forsaken; struck down, but not destroyed. So we do not lose heart. And here it is: though the outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. This is how we can make sense of Second Corinthians twelve ten, where it says, "When I'm weak, then I'm strong, because the strength does not come from you; it comes from Christ. It comes from the power through the Holy Spirit." Verse seventeen, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love. In uh, much evangelism in the second half of this last century, the phrase uh, ask Christ into your heart at the time of salvation was a very popular one. Uh, this, so Paul is writing to Christians and he's saying here so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. And, and so in our conception, we might think, well, didn't Christ, isn't Christ already living in the heart? Like, what, what is this looking like? Well, it's the same when you were saved, you got the Holy Spirit. God came to live in you. He did. That's true. Uh, but it all, we're also commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and when we're living lives that are constantly in gross and grievous sin, uh, John MacArthur puts it this way, uh, the, the word dwell. Is Christ able to come into your heart and dwell there? Or is he having to be like Martha, constantly up cleaning and knocking down grievous sins that are all over the place and focus on these things rather than dwell? Now, obviously, there is no one without sin. We know that absolutely. But through the years of your life, just like it said in Second Corinthians, the inner self is being renewed day by day. And we are not where we used to be. Praise God. We are not where we used to be. That, that is such a, a phenomenal thing that should make us so thankful that God works in our lives and He comes and He dwells. And what is this power? What is this? It is grounded in love. Grounded in love. Being rooted in love. Romans 13.10 says, Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, it is the fulfilling of the law. This love of God, when it is inside of us, when it controls us, it causes us to do so many things for the glory of God. So that was the power of the Christian. What is the power of the Christian? It is God and His Holy Spirit in your inner being. It is not you yourself. It's the power of God. And now we come to our third point, the Christian limit. What is the limit to that power? And of course, before we even look at a text, you know that there is no limit to God's power. And if it's His power in you, then there is no limit. So this is a trick point. Verse 18 and 19 may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Do you see here superlative, superlative? He just keeps on adding on and on and on these words. Uh, he is surely... Um, 
Even though we are, it surpasses knowledge. He is doing a good job of, of making this seem like it's like a mountain peak. And it just keeps going higher and higher and higher. And we can't see the top of this thing. Matthew Henry and Stephen Lawson speak. What, what, why, are they, why is he using these geographical terms, this breadth and length and depth? And what, so what are these referring to? And, and Matthew Henry uh, thinks it moves along the sense, since we're talking about love here. What, what is the greatest love? Well, John 15, 13 says that uh, greater love has no man than this to lay down his life for another. So the greatest example of that is Christ. And so the breadth, what could the breadth be meaning here? Well, it's broad enough to reach the ends of the earth, every people, group, and tribe. And we know that he's been focusing on that in chapter 2 and the first half of chapter 3, that there's no longer just the, the Jews, that it's all people, Jews and Gentiles, together, one church, one body. So the breadth of his love is so wide, it goes to the ends of this earth. So that's the breadth. And then what is the length? Well, it's, it's long enough. We know in chapter 1 he spoke about the predestining love of God. So it's long enough to reach all the way back into eternity past. And it's also long enough to reach all the way forward into eternity future where we will be with God forever in eternity. And His love knows no end there. So that is indeed uh, the length of God's love. Never ending. And height. Well, it's high enough that it can take wretched sinners like us and raise us all the way into the highest heaven. What love! And depth. Well, how far down can His love reach to the lowest sinner, even the chiefest sinner, even the person that we think of as the vilest sinner? And remember, we can each say that we ourselves are the vilest sinners, so don't just imagine we're thinking of rapists and murderers, although we surely are thinking of them because they, uh, even they are not beyond God's love. But even us, even we can be saved by God's grace. So that is the height and length and depth. That's possible that that could be what that means. It, it may not be, but it, it has some textual, textual basis. Think of this love and put it in perspective. I want you to consider for a moment the love you have. And you have quite a bit of love, no doubt. Surely you love your family. You would do anything for your family. Hopefully you love this church, right? Most of the people in it that you love nonstop. How much broader does it get beyond that? Everyone in this country, everybody to the ends of the earth, even the, the hateful, ugly, mean-spirited people, does our love get that far? Often when we read the story of Israel in the Old Testament and how time after time they sin, and you think, God, when are you going to have enough of these people? Just wipe them out. And He doesn't. What loving kindness. And then, of course, after we're reading it and thinking that's so down on Israel, how terrible Israel is, we consider for one moment that that is a story of our lives, our own sin. And we think, what love of God that He would save us. So compare it to our own love and see this unimaginable, beyond knowledge. And it, it is beyond our knowledge. We cannot fully comprehend it. When we have experienced it, we can comprehend it some more. I have heard from parents who had children, you know, often you'll hear someone say, I didn't know my heart could love that much until my son or daughter was born. Or when you found the love of your life or whatever the case is, I, I didn't know I had that capacity. So, I mean, that would be, that's hard to explain to somebody who's never experienced it, I'm sure. 
And this love of God is even harder to explain to somebody who's never experienced it. But when, we, when we've experienced it, we can feel it. We can know it to some extent, even though it is unknowable. Now, uh, look at the beauty of this. We have here the Trinity. Did you catch it? Verse 16, filled with the Spirit. Verse 17, filled with Christ. Verse 19, filled with God. Oh, believer, do you realize that the Godhead, the triune God, the one who holds the entire universe together, is in you this moment? Oh, it is almost too much to comprehend the grace of that. Verse 20 and 21, now to him. See, he doesn't just stop with this breadth and width and length. Now he's continuing on. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we can ask or think according to the power that is at work within us. To him be the glory in the church in and in Jesus Christ throughout the generations forever and ever. Amen. And he continues to build over and over again. He is able. This is God is able. There's nothing he is not able to do. To do far more. That would be enough to do far more. He can do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think even. If he could just do what we could ask, that would be unfathomable. But he can do more than we can ask or think. There was a movie some time ago called Inception. And the part of the movie was if you could think it in the dream, you could create it, you could make it appear. And one of the lines that uh, one of the people says uh, when one of the characters keeps on thinking of these small tools to use, and he says, you mustn't be afraid to dream a little bit bigger, darling. And then he has this, this larger tool that he can use. And the same thing with this, the comic book figure, Green Lantern. His power was whatever he could imagine, he could create. But this scripture is saying, even if you had that superpower and what you could imagine God could do, it's beyond that. Beyond the height of what you can imagine God can do. We're climbing this mountain and we're not even close to seeing the top of it. It is just so high of how God, how good God is and what he can do. Now, I emphasize to you as we're getting towards the end of this to remember this prayer, John MacArthur calls it like the ignition switch. We've been learning this theology and we're about to turn to practical Christian living. And this is turning the switch on saying you must be rooted in all this theology that we've learned, all of this, this power that comes from Christ, from God. You should never think, oh, it's another sermon on the love of God. Good night. You need that power within you to be living, to be doing these things. So uh, we are thankful that Paul has written this prayer. Now, let's put all of these things together, all of the first three chapters in this prayer, as we consider. uh, So he, it, it would... It would be something if the God, the triune God, was giving power inside of you and all of these things. That would be something. But remember what we learned in chapter 1 and chapter 2. What kind of people were we? We were wretched, filthy sinners, dead, spiritually dead. He not only raised us up from the life, from, from death to life, but he now fills us with unlimited power to grow in grace. It just, it is unfathomable. I keep saying that because it is. It is a miracle. You know, uh, 
Many people experience the aging process. I'm sad to say that it has already set in on me. My back hurts when I drive. As our bodies are wasting away, our inner man is being renewed. Can you imagine the miracle of that? The sin that entered this world causes decay and corruption and our bodies are failing. But through the power that you have available to you in God, in the Holy Spirit, there is no decay in your soul. It is growth. All the way up as you continue to rely on Christ and His Spirit, growth all the way up until He finally glorifies you at death and brings you to the heavenly kingdom. So as I conclude, let us remind ourselves what's the Christian example? It is humble hearts praying for other believers that we're seeking Notice what he's praying in these prayers. He's not praying for the Ephesians that their church would have a new annex and that the people would be able to do all. He's not praying for physical things, though I'm sure there is time for that. He's praying for their spiritual growth. He's praying for that. So that is our example. We pray for this for other people. And what is the Christian power? It's not you. It is Christ in you. It is the power of the Holy Spirit in you. It's being filled with the fullness of God in you. And what is the limit of that power? It is unlimited. It's a blank check. It is God Himself, the guarantor. So we'll close with that last verse. God who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think according to the power at work within us, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.